Today, we begin with a story. The following is not my story, but it's the story of an amazing woman from our church who is asked to remain anonymous, and I'm honored to read her story to you today. God is the story. God is the hero of my story. I definitely am not. As everyone's story does, mine begins with my childhood. I include it because for several years, I was the victim of sexual abuse. And this has impacted my future story. It always does. While growing up, I dismissed any effect of the abuse, my young mind reasoning that no violence translated into no big deal. When I entered university, however, I had my first serious boyfriend and quickly ran into strong walls within myself. Any display of affection, any physical closeness on the part of my boyfriend brought flashbacks and enormously negative emotions. For the first time in my life, I told my story of childhood abuse. I shared my story with a friend as I worked to unpack what I was experiencing. As I explored my deepest feelings and confusion with this girlfriend, I found myself growing ever closer to her while simultaneously keeping my boyfriend at a distance. During the second semester of that year of that relationship between my girlfriend and I crossed a line from a typical friendship into something more. We both knew it. We became inseparable. We constantly sought out privacy, and I'm ashamed to say that we began to express our affection for one another in physical ways. I cannot say that I was physically attracted to her or to any other women. That has never been my burden to bear. And yet, the intimacy and love we felt for one another progressed into a physical relationship. We were living on a Christian campus and wrestled with guilt, yet we refused to change our behavior. We knew that God's law in Leviticus prescribed the death sentence for homosexual acts. We were familiar with Paul's words in Romans 1, describing same-sex attraction as unnatural and shameful behavior that resulted from minds described as dark and confused. Romans 1.24 says, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired, as he consistently allows his children to use their free will. But we ignored the thoughts we did not like and played the game of rationalization, insisting that our relationship was special and so wonderful that it just had to be God's will. We intended to be together for the rest of our lives. Thankfully, our crazy little world began to tumble. By the end of that school year, God sent two brave souls into my life that cared enough to confront me, a good friend and my mom. Well, when I denied any of their concerns, my mom involved the university chaplain. Since he had hired me as an RA, my mother believed that he should understand whom he had hired. This gentle man confronted me 
and counseled me throughout the summer. Through these people, I began a journey of honesty. Honesty with God, with myself, and with others. That summer, I cried a lot. I prayed a lot. I meditated on scriptures, journaled, and listened. I soaked in the lyrics of Christian artists. Lyrics like, my child, my child, why are you crying? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. I did it all while I was dying. Rest in your faith. My peace will come to you. I see no stain upon you because you are my child and you know me. To me, you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains, only what you do in me. And also the familiar hymn, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. That summer was defined by surrender and repentance, by the grace of God, and through the support of people who loved me, I moved the trajectory of my life away from the pursuit of a same-sex relationship. I knew that above all, I wanted to live out what I believed to be God's best will for my life. While I loved my girlfriend, I knew that I wanted to love Jesus more. It was a difficult time, but it also became the sweetest of times. That is because while I let go of an unhealthy relationship, I got to experience intimacy with God at an incredible new depth. I had never felt so loved by him before. I experienced the radical forgiveness expressed in the cross. I was blown away by his grace and by the way God surrounded me in his love, a love that was completely untainted and perfect. When I reflect back on that season of my life, I find myself so thankful for the many guardians God surrounded me with. A solid Christian upbringing, the honest community of family and friends, the truth of scripture, the clarity of wise counsel, the intimacy of worship, and especially the almost tangible love of God's unflinching presence. I'm also so thankful for a husband who, knowing all of my story, still chose to embrace me as his own. My takeaways, first, humility. Knowing that I rely fully on God's grace and am not in a position to judge anyone else. Second, a belief that sexual attraction can be a rather fluid thing, especially for young people. Back in university, I so appreciated the words of our chaplain, words echoed by Matthew when he started this series. He told me, you are not a lesbian, you are a child of God, and you have some important choices to make. In today's cultural climate, I hope young people will still find voices that speak this truth into their lives. My biggest takeaway from that season of life, however, is the unshakable knowledge that I am completely and perfectly loved.
Just want to say a huge thank you to Wendy for reading that story and just a massive thank you to um, the woman who uh, allowed us to hear her story. Um, thank you so much for sharing it. Uh, you know, I think, I think this is the story of an apprentice of Jesus. This is somebody who is willing to go, okay, I feel these desires. I, I sense these attractions and I want to bring them before Jesus, my King, and find true intimacy in him. So what an amazing story and I'm just so grateful that we were able to hear it. And so I want to welcome all of you to week number four in our Loved series. We, we are on a journey um, exploring the heart of Jesus when it comes to identity, sexuality, and gender. And today we're in part two of a mini-series within a series. So this is uh, on gay marriage and the scriptures, part two. I want to make a quick note and tell you that our leadership team compiled a bunch of books that were really important for us as we were forming this series. And there's a table in the foyer that you can check out on your way out of here. These are some of the authors, the testimonies, the, the theological ideas that are really important as we craft, as we learn to become apprentices of Jesus when it comes to these issues of identity, sexuality, and gender. So please stop at the table, pick up a book. Um, they're all fantastic. Just close your eyes and just pick one. Um, it's going to be fine. It's going to be good. And they're amazing authors. So let's pray as we dive in. King Jesus, we thank you so much for the story um, that we've heard of somebody who fully just took their life and their attractions and desires and just placed them before you. And King Jesus, we want to do the same here today. Each of us in our own story with uh, the things that we're walking through, the things we're feeling, um, God, we, we lay it all before you and we pray, King Jesus, that you would be Lord in this place, that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would pour the love of God into this place, Holy Spirit, pour the love of God upon us as we listen to, to your truth, to your word um, in the scriptures. And we just thank you so much for your heart for us, Jesus. We cling to that here today and we trust you in your name, amen. Okay, so last week, if you'll remember, we started off with the posture of the father. Remember the father, he holds his children in his arms, and sometimes a father will say yes, sometimes a father will say no, but both the yes and the no are love, right? We don't pit the yes against the no there, that it's all love from the father. And today I want us to capture the posture of Jesus today. And in order to capture his heart for us, I want us to look at a story we find in John chapter 8. And I'm going to summarize a bit of the story, and then we're going to look at a couple of the verses. But in John chapter 8, we see Jesus, um, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring a woman to him, a woman who has been caught in adultery. And there's an angry mob of men. They're, they're holding stones in their hands, and they're about, to, they're about to kill her. They're going to murder this woman because she's broken the Torah. She's broken the law. So they're going to throw these stones and kill her. But Jesus takes a moment to protect her, to shield her. And watch how he does it. So Jesus is, you know, he's drawing in the sand. I'll say something about that in a second. He's drawing in the sand, and then he asks them a really important question. Or he makes a comment to them. He says this, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So he gets the angry mob thinking about their own sin. Then my own uh, professor, Daryl Johnson, uh, when I was at Regent College, he, he said that it, it's his belief that as Jesus' finger is moving through the sand, that what he's doing is he's writing the law, he's writing the Ten Commandments in the sand. It's just an opinion. It's an interesting thought. Uh, and he gets this from Deuteronomy chapter 9, where Moses talks about the finger of God. Listen to this. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. 
And so the idea here is that God wrote the law with his own finger and on tablets of stone. And in the same way, Jesus in the sand is writing the law so that these men, these, this angry mob, look at the law and go, oh, I'm a lawbreaker as well. And they drop their stones. But anyway, so Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, which is interesting because the only one in that story who is without sin is Jesus himself. And one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. So Jesus protects this woman. And now I want you to watch what he does. This is where we're going to slow things down. He looks at the woman and he says this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. That's interesting. Watch, watch the posture of Jesus, right? We want to live like Jesus lived, and so just watch, watch him. Some of us would be tempted to say to a lawbreaker, I condemn you, leave your life of sin. Other of us, some of us would be tempted to say, I don't condemn you, keep living the way you're living. Jesus does neither. While there is no condemnation, there is no condoning of sin. Jesus gets it right. He's brilliant. He shows us the posture that we're called to take as his apprentices. I don't condemn you, but please leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus knows this, that that truth is not at war with love. So I want to make this statement. The truth of Jesus is not at war with the love of Jesus. The truth of Jesus is not at war with the love of Jesus. But some Christian teachers will disagree and will make arguments that continue to justify same-sex sex. These Christian teachers will argue that saying no to same-sex sex is incredibly unloving. Last week, I gave an example of Brandon and Jen Hatmaker who came to believe that God affirms same-sex marriage. Last week, we then walked through the scriptures, and the scriptures seem clear. Sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman. So how is it, some of us are wondering, that some Christian teachers continue to hold to an affirming stance of gay marriage? Well, I want us to dive into some of their arguments, and I wanted you to know that I will refer to their view as the affirming view, the belief that God affirms same-sex marriage. And before we start, just to be clear, uh, I just want to say that while these are interesting arguments from the affirming view, I don't believe that any of these arguments line up with the teachings of Jesus. And that's what we're trying to discover, right? So I want to do a quick recap from last week on a couple of the affirming arguments that we talked about uh, for those who weren't here. So really quick, two of of the affirming arguments we looked at last week are these. So some will say, hey, Jesus is silent about homosexuality, so he must be fine with same sex marriage. That's one of the arguments. And a a quick recap on our response there. We saw that his silence, Jesus' silence on the issue, is far from him giving approval of something, but could be quite the opposite. Why would Jesus have to speak on something that would have been so clear in the Torah? 
Why would he have to articulate his view on something that really was not up for debate? Jesus spends lots of time, his followers, spends, they spend lots of time articulating things that seem to diverge from God's uh, covenant in the Old Testament. And, but he doesn't say anything. Why would he have to clear up a clear teaching from the Torah? So you can explore more of that if you want to watch last week's sermon. But uh, the second affirming argument we looked at last week is aren't same-sex prohibitions really about domination and exploitation? It's a good question. You know, maybe it was that just Paul, all Paul's talking about is older men sleeping with younger boys or something like that. Well, the, we saw last week that the Greek word Paul uses is the word arsenokoitai, and he combines that with another Greek word, malakoi. And as we mentioned earlier, or last week, it simply means a male lying with a male. Pretty general. Just a male who lies with a male. The age of the person, the reason, the rationale, the orientation, doesn't matter. Paul had at his disposal other Greek words that could have helped him um, describe more of an older man taking advantage of a younger boy. Um, words like pederastia, which is love of boys, or erastes, which is an adult man who courted a young boy, or eromenos, which is an adolescent boy. Paul doesn't use those Greek words. He simply uses malakoi arsenokoitai, so it's just a male who lies with a male. All right, let's look at three more this week. First of all, some in the affirming camp will argue this. The biblical writers didn't know about same-sex orientation or same-sex identity. The argument here is, and I want to do it justice, is that no one in the Bible understood the concept of being gay. They didn't know about orientation or identity. While the scriptures, so the argument here is, hey, listen, the scriptures might be clear about same-sex sex, but that's for a particular context. The writers were in the dark about identity as a gay person. So really, when we read the Bible, it's not speaking to someone who has an identity being gay. Okay, so fair question. That's a, that's a good question, and so let's, let's see if there's a response to that uh, question. The American uh, Psychological Association, who takes an affirming view, by the way, um, of same-sex marriage, they define sexual orientation like this. Sexual orientation. An enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions to men, women, or both sexes. So I just want to notice a few words there. An enduring pattern of attraction. Notice that. That's interesting to me. An enduring pattern of attraction. So our definition today of orientation i.e., so being gay, is that this is found in someone who says they have an enduring attraction. That's so interesting. So the only way I would know if I have an orientation is if I have an attraction. So to say the biblical writers, they knew of attractions, they knew of enduring attractions, they just didn't know of orientations, is faulty logic. Maybe the problem is that our secular culture has taken attractions and made them identities. Maybe that is a step that all of us have just assumed and taken for granted that we actually need to step back, we need to look at it again, we need to be critical of that. Yes, we all have all kinds of things we're attracted to, all kinds of desires that are deep within us. 
but is it right to make them identities, orientations? So Al Mohler writes this, the modern notion of sexual orientation is, as a matter of fact, exceedingly modern. It is also a concept without any definitive meaning. As a matter of fact, attraction and desire are the only indicators upon which the modern notion of sexual orientation are premised. Attraction is the only way you would know if you have an orientation. So the real question we're asking is, would the biblical writers have been aware of people that had enduring attraction for the same sex? People who were married or had enduring relationships of same-sex love. So would the biblical writers have known this? Yes, they would have. And the ancient world was filled with people that had enduring same-sex sexual relationships. So to say that the authors had no idea, they, they did. They did. They lived in a world where same-sex unions were common. And I'm just, I, by the way, I was just reading a couple books on this, and I just barely scratched the surf surface. So I'm just going to give you a few examples. There are so many more, um, but here's a little taste. So Archilochus, Greek poet from the 7th century, he speaks of men with different natures and therefore different sexual preferences. Alkman, Greek poet from Sparta, in his first maiden song, reveals a ritualized lesbian betrothal between two young women. A lesbian betrothal between two young women in the seventh century. In Plato's Symposium, Agathon is the lifelong lover and companion of Pausanias. At the Symposium, which is a drinking party, in 416 BC, Pausanias applauds the naturalness and longevity of same-sex love. In Plato's Symposium, again, we hear of Zeus splitting the original human beings in half, creating both heterosexual and homosexual humans, each of which were seeking to be reunited with their lost halves. And in the Symposium, we also read of Protagoras and Socrates. They're having a conversation with each other where they reference two men who were lovers for over 10 years. And finally, in Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes said that some men were lovers of women, while others, quote, have an affection for men and embrace them. And he adds this, he said, someone's character is revealed by what they love. And since men were superior to women in his mind, boo, but anyway, men are superior to women in his mind, the conclusion was men who loved men were superior to men who loved women. Men who loved men, superior to men who loved women. He writes, lovers of men are the best of boys and youth because they have the most manly nature. They are valiant and manly and have a manly countenance and they embrace that which is like them, namely other men. Still in the Greek world, in the Trojan War, think of the same-sex love between Achilles and Patroclus. Think of Pausanias and Agathon of Athens, fourth century, two Greek men who were lovers. So moving out of the Greek world into the Roman world, in Rome, men married other men. Now, it was not full legal status type of marriage, but there were formal ceremonies where men married other men and considered each other married. They considered themselves married. Nero, Roman emperor, married a man who is a free Roman citizen named Doryphorus. Emperor Hadrian, it's recorded of his love for Antonus. At Antonus, the city was destroyed. He rebuilds the city and names it uh, after Antonus out of a love for him, a deep love for him. Clement of Alexandria, leader in the church in Pedagogos, he writes of women marrying other women within the Roman Empire. 
women marrying other women in the Roman Empire. So listen to N.T. Wright. He writes this, as a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium or when I read the accounts from early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point, which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. Now, and he write, he's a Christian scholar, so maybe we'll trust uh, our trust of him. Uh, maybe we can't trust his worldview. So Lewis Crompton, a self-identified gay historian in his massive homosexuality and civilization from Harvard Press 2003, he writes this. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. So here's the deal. The ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, was familiar with same-sex love, with same-sex romance. Paul would have been very familiar as he moves around church planting um, across the Mediterranean in, in a, in a Greco-Roman culture. He would have been very familiar with same-sex love shared between adults. So I don't find uh, this very compelling from the affirming view, but uh, we'll move on to another uh, argument that the affirming scholars make. Number two, can we read scripture on a trajectory? On a trajectory, what does this mean? Well, the affirming argument here is that while the scriptures seem to be clear that same-sex sex is wrong, the Bible gives us clues that God is moving towards less restrictions and greater sexual freedom. So it's like, you, you won't see it here, you won't see it here in the Bible, but there's like little indicators and clues that like God is expanding the sexual freedom. If you look closely, there's a trajectory towards greater freedom. Okay, it's a good question. Is that true? No. <laughs> Okay, so when it comes to sexuality, uh, I guess I could have said that a little bit nicer. Um, upon first reflection, it seems like maybe possibly not. Okay, but when it comes to, when it comes to sexuality, here's, here's the thing. We see the opposite. The Old Testament seems to have um, what feels like looser views on divorce and polygamy, right? There's polygamous relationships. There's, uh, you know, Moses says write a certificate of divorce, and so there's... Um, uh, all kinds of divorce going on, and then Jesus shows up, and what does he do? He raises the bar. He, he gives us a stricter ethic. He goes back to the book of Genesis and goes, guys, remember, marriage is lifelong, and marriage is between a man and a woman, and it's like, whew, he makes it much more strict. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in the heart. So he actually gets the heart involved, because it's not just about action, it's about what you're thinking and the things you're processing in your heart. So Preston Sprinkle writes this. He says, when the Bible augments its vision for marriage and sexuality, it moved, moves towards a stricter ethic, not a more expanded one. Now, some, I just want to give you an example of how some would say, actually, there's another category where it feels like it's expanding. So take women, women in ministry, women in the church. Jesus gives dignity to women. Uh, women who followed Jesus were disciples. They became prophets in the church. They were deacons in the church. They were the first witnesses of the resurrection. 
And the church currently uh, has a debate on whether they were elders or not. But aside from that elder debate, again, disciples, prophets, first witnesses of the resurrection, deacons, like you see in Jesus this move towards including women in his ministry, which was beautiful and allowing them to serve with their gifts. But it's like in sex, when it comes to sexuality, it's the opposite. Jesus is like tightening the sexual ethic. Again, going back to the book of Genesis, saying, hey, this is a lifelong covenantal love between a man and a woman. Okay, so I don't buy the trajectory argument. And the third argument is this that we'll look at today. We're on the wrong side of history. Especially when you do eight-week series on this stuff, Matthew, you're on the wrong side of history. The affirming argument is that we're going to lose our relevance as a church. It's a fair concern. Um, we're stuck reading the Bible in a way that does damage to real people today. And I'm just going to be brief with this one, um, and I understand the question fully. But I'd just like to encourage us to be people of, that study history really well. Um, throughout the 2,000 years of the church, so often, and I'm actually going to say more about this in about, on our last Sunday in this series. We'll spend most of our time looking at this. But how the church has remained faithful to Jesus' teaching on peace, on using money, on sexuality, on loving our enemy, so on and so forth. At different cultures and at different times, the teachings of Jesus will really go against the grain of a culture. But our job as faithful followers of Jesus is just to remain faithful. Just stay faithful. Just keep following Jesus. Stay faithful. And if you go back 2,000 years, you, you see the church who actually they were part of a sexual revolution in the empire. See, the Roman Empire, the, Ro the Greco-Roman world, when you read the history of it, they were so free with their sexuality. All kinds of sexual promiscuity happening in temples with prostitutes, with young children. Like, it, it was just all over the place in the Greco-Roman world, especially for men. Men had all the freedom to live the sexual lives that they wanted to live. And Christians at the very beginning could have felt that they were on the wrong side of history. You know, here they were, they were preaching this ethic where men needed to stay faithful to their wife in a covenant of marriage. Are they on the wrong side of history? But they stayed faithful to Jesus. And after several hundred years, it turned the Roman Empire upside down. Why? Because the Christian sexual ethic, the ethics of Jesus were better for families, better for marriages. And his sexual ethic was attractive to women, slaves, and children. Women, slaves, and children saw something in Jesus and saw something in the ethics and his sexual ethics and his view on marriage that was attractive. There was something true about that sexual ethic in the world. And what happened after three to 400 years? The sexual ethics of Jesus became the sexual ethics of the Roman Empire. So... Being on the wrong side of history, uh, I think it's okay at times. It's all right. And we're not called uh, to do anything but simply be faithful to Jesus. So just want to put those five uh, affirming arguments on the screen there. If you are interested in diving deeper into any of those, and there are way more. By the way, I just was running out of time so often this week, and I was cutting things out, and I was like, no, I don't have enough time. But there's way more other affirming arguments that are made, other responses. You can find a lot of those in the resources that we're offering for the series. All right, I just want to highlight a problem um, as I conclude my little part here. But the problem is this. I think this is our problem. We're appealing to experience as our authority. 
I think rather than having the truth of Jesus as our authority, we're moving experience into having the greatest authority in our lives. Um, I want to quote someone. Uh, His name is Luke Timothy Johnson. He's a liberal New Testament scholar, someone who believes uh, that same-sex marriage is God's will for two people. Um, So, uh, he, he, is, he says he studied the Bible, and he sees that the Bible is fully against same-sex relationships. So the question is, how does he then justify God being okay with same-sex marriage? Um, listen to this quote. I find this quote fascinating. It's a little bit long, but here it is. He says, I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. Pause really quick. That's interesting from someone who affirms gay marriage, right? Says God is okay with gay marriage. He's saying the scripture is clear. But what are we to do with what the text says? I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of scripture. Now he's getting honest. He's going, we just reject them. And appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. I find that fascinating. Here is a a progressive affirming scholar who says, oh no, the scripture is totally clear. What I'm saying to you is I think my experience in life should be stronger than the scriptures themselves. Scripture's clear, he says. Let's not try bending over backwards to make it seem like it's not clear. It's clear. I choose simply to reject it, and I choose to believe that what I feel inside me must be stronger, must be who I am. You know, at least he's honest, right? I thought, wow, well, that was clear. For 2,000 years, though, the church has anchored its trust in Jesus and in the scriptures. We read the scriptures and we see Jesus. We see the life that he's called us to. We hear the gospel, the story of his, his sacrifice for us and and his resurrection from the dead, and we anchor our faith in Jesus as we see him revealed in the scriptures. So I can't walk away from that. I can't say that there is a greater authority than him. Has the authority of experience risen above the authority of scripture, the authority of God's heart for creation, the authority of Jesus Christ, our king? Listen to the sobering words of N.T. Wright. He writes this. The age of reason has thus begotten the age of feeling, as romanticism has taken a ride on the back of revolutionary thought. What many of us feel is thus elevated to the moral high ground, without noticing that the Holocaust itself, that ethical or anti-ethical benchmark of the 20th century, was perpetrated by people who were doing what many of them felt. As Christians, we are, must be, we must be critical of whatever I feel is the highest authority in my life. We have to be critical of that. We, in our theology, we remember the fall. As we look to the scriptures, we remember the fall when sin comes into the world and it distorts our desires. So scripture is our source of truth, not our emotions. And so I wanna end with 
how I started there, the truth of Jesus, remember, is not at war with the love of Jesus. When this feels like it is not a loving teaching, um, is it Jesus that needs to shift or is it us? Do we need to remind ourselves that love, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So to my conservative Christian friends, I want to say this. As we listen to the truth of Jesus, may we never forget the posture Jesus has called us to have in the world. It's one without condemnation and protection of the marginalized. We'll talk more about that as the series goes on. But to my friends on the left side of things in the progressive affirming camp, I want to say this. Love does not require celebration. To love someone deeply doesn't mean I have to celebrate everything about them because love is sharing our lives. Generous love is care and eating together and working for a common cause and hospitality. But love does not require celebration. The truth of Jesus is not at war with the love of Jesus. And we want to end our time here today with a story. And I want to invite my friends Scott and Nikki on up um, to share their story with you. Can you welcome Scott and Nikki White? Scott and Nikki, my two friends, I am so happy about this moment. I'm so glad that you get to share your story. I love you both. <laughs> Scott, let's start with you. Could you share your story with us? I was born in the country of Bolivia. My parents were missionaries. Coming back to Canada was, at 10 was a traumatic event. I had culture shock and was bullied until I was in high school. The context is that I was a well-taught young Christian boy. I woke up one night when I was 15 with a troubling dream. I had gone to bed that night, a typical teenager, fixated on girls, and the next morning, remembering the dream, I was shocked to realize that I was attracted to guys. I was ashamed and angry. I became totally focused on trying to find some way past how I felt. That was the start of a long wrestling with my sexuality. I nurtured my attraction to boys using pornography, and I would swing between giving into my desires and then confess privately, repent, pray. I alternated between agony and peace. It never crossed my mind to admit my struggle to anybody. I had learned that Christians were supposed to be strong and rely on God alone. So for the rest of high school, I swung between temptation, desire, anguish, and sin, then repentance and private confession, which helped me to be at peace with God again. The cycle would last three to four weeks. But the longer it went on, the harder it became to come back to God. About the same time this was going on, a small spiritual revival came to Winnipeg and I got involved. My faith came alive. I discovered that God wanted a deep and a personal relationship with me, and I took hold of that with all my strength. My experience of God's love and grace brought me daily to worship and joy, and often to tears, especially when I was walking home each day after school. I had this deep sense of God, and from my parents I had a rich inheritance in the word. I still had same-sex attraction, and I was in a kind of emotional pain all the time. But I knew God was with me, even though I had these desires. I experienced it every day. 
At the end of my time, at the end of my time at university, I went through a depression that lasted two years. I lost all sense of God's or my parents' love. The only feelings I had were my sexual desires. I remember sitting outside my workplace in a field at the Winnipeg International Airport in the hot sun wondering whether I should drop my faith. My life felt meaningless, and the only thing that kept me from doing so was that the alternative appeared to me to be darker and worse. Better depression and a distant relationship with God than life without him. I knew that I was his even if I couldn't sense him, so I renewed my relationship <clears throat> to God and my commitment to him, and I knew that somehow I would survive this. I went back to Winnipeg. Oh, excuse me. After working for a year, I went to New Tribes Mission Bible School and then missionary boot camp. This was a rich time, and I made a lot of friends and was constantly surrounded by dedicated Christians. My sexual desires were not the center of my attention while I was at the school. My desire for same-sex relationship was dormant, but I still told no one. It never entered my head. I went back to Winnipeg after Bible school and worked at the Health Sciences Center computer department. I was financially independent, and I moved out to an apartment with a good Christian friend. About this time, I fell into a second and deeper bout of depression, and my sense of loneliness was growing. I, was des I desperately wanted a relationship with some guy, but I fought that desire because I belonged to God. But it was tearing me apart inside. I knew that homosexuality was not what he wanted. It might have been what I wanted. I lost more than one battle. In the apartment above me, I met a young man my own age. My roommate and I both recognized he was gay. I went out for coffee with him a month later and had my first sexual encounter. After that, I gave in. I had multiple sexual encounters with three partners over the next nine months. My life was in shambles, my guilt was awful, but my loneliness was even worse. I remember writing in my journal, I guess I'm gay. But even as I wrote it, it didn't feel right. I knew God cared for me even with my same-sex attraction and my sin. I sensed that taking on that label and identifying myself as gay would send me down a path that would be hard for me to come back from. I needed help. So I told my parents the whole story. They responded lovingly, though I could see that they had a lot of pain. They had no advice, but prayed with me. I went back to my apartment feeling hopeful for the first time, telling someone remove some of the turmoil. At one point, a few months later, I stood on my balcony looking over the city and whispered to God that I was lonely. I felt his answer directly in my heart. Within a year, you'll be married. I had no idea it would be to Nikki. <laughs> but sadly, acting out sexually continued, and I realized that I needed to take the scripture from Matthew 18, 9 seriously. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. I secretly packed up my apartment one Saturday morning and moved across the city to a new place. I ordered an unlisted phone number and dropped out of sight. My contacts with my gay community ended. Once in my new place, I wrote in my journal that I wasn't gay. Many times that year, 
I would go back on that statement. I would open my journal and try to write that I was gay, but I just couldn't. Something held me back every time. Though I struggled with attraction to men and wanted a gay lifestyle, that was not who I was. I belonged to God. Our family friend, Nikki Tellick, came home from a break from her studies in Mexico that year, and in a single dramatic instant, I saw her clearly depressed or not, and I knew that she was mine. She knew it too. In fact, she'd known it for almost six years. <laughs> it's a great romantic Holy Spirit story, and I genuinely fell in love with who she was. Despite my same-sex attraction, and I told her about my history before we got married. Like any youth, young couple in love, we were optimistic, but heterosexual marriage did not end my same-sex attraction. We had a lot of hard work to do. Scott, thank you. And Nikki, could you uh, pick up on uh, at that point and just describe your marriage with Scott? Hard work is, I think, the phrase we would use, but probably most of you who are married would say that about your marriage as well. Marriage is just hard work. The first hard thing I had to face was the blow to my own ego. Now, I had spent six years studying in a fine arts community in Colima, Mexico. Most of my peers were actively homosexual or bisexual. It was very com comfortable for me. In that day and in that culture, there were three options. Hide it, flaunt it, or try to fix it. So when I married Scott, I chose door number three. Like any naive bride, and aren't we all, I was convinced that Scott would change for me. I had to repent of my pride, love Scott as he was, with no promises about the future, and make a commitment to love him for the rest of my life. That was a hard moment. The second challenge was intimacy with God, and Scott's referred to that, and Matthew's talked about it. Scott and I decided early on we would each pursue a personal relationship with God is our highest priority, higher than the priority of our own marriage. Experiencing intimacy with God reorders all other desires, and it freed us to love each other generously. With my own history of childhood abandonment and sexual abuse, I can easily fall into feeling rejected or unloved and look to others to fill that need, whether it's my husband or my kids or more recently, my grandchildren, who are amazing. <laughs> but when Jesus fills that void in me, then I can love them, him, well, without clinging, without clutching, and without crushing them. The third challenge was community. We realized around year 10 of our marriage that we needed community. <clears throat> Please don't wait that long. We had become isolated, private. We're trying to be everything for each other. We both needed friends. And I remember the day that the penny dropped for me. I had a preschooler, a toddler, and a newborn. We were all sick, all lying in a big king-size bed. And Scott came home from work, and he was discouraged and wanted to share his discouragement and ask for prayer. And I looked at him, trying to manage all these kids, and I went, you need friends. I need friends. We need friends. It was an aha moment for me. But being the very intense, opinionated, difficult, introverted people that we are means that finding friends was not, is not easy. If you are one of our friends, thank you. That is your superpower. <laughs> and if you're one of our friends and you're hearing this part of our story for the first time, surprise, but we haven't been hiding it from you. It just hasn't come up in the conversation. 
While the sexual aspect of our relationship has never been and never will be a secret, it is private. And we share our story when it's relevant or helpful. We're not casual about it. My kids say, Mom, you're not casual about anything. <laughs> we also chose not to share in this kind of a public venue until our children knew our story. And we chose to wait until we were confident that they had the life experience and maturity to be able to process our disclosure well. And then we had to take some time to process their reactions to our disclosure, which were really funny. So our oldest, John, Scott took him out for coffee and told him, hey, John, this is who I, this is my history, this is who, my story, and John went, Huh, you're even more interesting than I thought, Dad. <laughs> our, our daughter, Robin, when Scott took her out, listened politely, and then said, I know, Daddy, I read your journal. <laughs> <laughs> do not journal online and then leave your laptop open. Just don't do that. I don't know how much she read. That's a good question. Our youngest son, our youngest son David, grew up more in this current culture of inclusivity and tolerance. And so for him, he took it in stride. He listened and he went, uh-huh, and then went back to what he was doing. It didn't change his opinion of his dad or his love for his dad. Identity, we've talked about that. Although at the time, I don't think we would have realized that's what we were focusing on. We have worked really hard to take our identity and God's love for us. Being a mixed sexual orientation couple does not define us. In fact, it's not even the most interesting thing about us. And sexuality is not the biggest issue in our relationship. Like many of you, communication is our biggest problem. We choose to see our mixed sexual orientation as being part of the package. Like Scott's dyslexia, my claustrophobia, Scott's temper, my obsessive need for beauty, order, cleanliness, and control of the cosmos. <laughs> None of these things are a primary source of identity for us, although my kids are going to bury me with a vacuum cleaner, I know, but still. And then the final thing was learning to serve. That's been hard work, and this church really helped us to turn a corner in that. Having an other-minded lifestyle has been critical for us, for our own personal well-being and our marriage. Otherwise, Scott and I would quickly get sucked into an abyss of self-absorption. We're intense. So we've done some things to be able to serve well. We've certified to do premarital and mar marriage coaching to be able to give couples what we ourselves did not receive. We've taken training to become mentors, freedom session sponsors. I went to seminary to do graduate studies to be able to just communicate better. We did training to be able to pray effectively for people. We, we did all of this. We do all of this because we believe that the broken pieces of our life may be part of the beautiful mosaic of your life. We believe that God can work all things together for a high and eternal good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8. He does this when we surrender our stories to him. Wow. Thank you, Nikki. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So... So I, final question, briefly, like just for those of you, those who are in the room who, who would connect with your story, uh, could you leave us with a couple of values that are on your heart? In what I said about my history, I never used the word identity because back then I never used it of myself. Looking back, even though I didn't see it, God was always whispering that I was his. Every time I tried to write I'm gay, he would whisper, you're mine. I just didn't recognize his voice. 
however you may see things. He loves you and he's just as possessive about you as he was with me, even if you don't see it. The issue was not about being gay or straight, but being his. He brought Matthew 18, 9 to my mind to prompt me to move away, and he will prompt you to take specific steps. He brought many friends into our lives, and these friends gave us life. God can and will surround you with the people who will give you strength and love if you let him. Knowing my Bible was a big help in all of this, and God often brought his words to mind. But most wonderful of all is that in the middle of all that, he taught me to walk with him. There is no end of learning how to be with him, and now I feel like I've only just started. Nothing managed to fill my loneliness because even though I was walking with him, I had a divided heart. Eventually, I chose to pursue relationship with Jesus above all others. I lean on him and still often find myself crying on his shoulders. His presence is absolutely precious. I don't ever want to give it up. Yeah, and I guess if you're relating to some part of this story or any story you've heard in this series, this is what I would want you to hear. We are all broken. Everybody's broken. Scott and I are broken, but not just sexually, relationally, physically, socially, mentally, emotionally. The way that Scott's broken sexuality manifests is in same-sex attraction. Yours might manifest differently. But your brokenness, surrendered to God, can become a work of art. I really believe that. The kind of beauty that is, it's deep and tender and painful and shocking and heartbreaking and inspiring and overwhelming. Sometimes I look at my husband, I see the beauty of what God has done and who he is, and he takes my breath away. My husband is made in the image of God, and when he is most like Jesus, he is his most authentic, truest self. So if you have his kind of story or my kind of story, I want you to know that you have a unique capacity for intimacy, a genuine passion for social justice, a real vision for vulnerable community. Please don't waste all of that on a Facebook rant. Bring your broken pieces to Jesus and to the church. We need them. Guys, thank you. So I would love to welcome our communion servers forward. Um, the communion servers here in a second will pass out the elements for communion. You can stay seated. But I want to go back as I end with Jesus in John 8 and the woman caught in adultery. The reason he could look at her and say there is no condemnation is because he at Calvary at the cross would take the stones upon his own flesh. He would be killed before an angry mob. He would be murdered before an angry mob who thought it was doing God's work and his blood would cleanse every sin of those who would come to him. Listen to Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation, there is no condemnation for the woman who shared her story at the beginning. There's no condemnation for Scott. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. He looks at us 
like the woman caught in adultery, and he says, there's no condemnation. And in your freedom and in my freedom, let's turn away from sin and walk in the love and life of Jesus. Amen.